This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. I think uh, that you have to let your own vision be solid and true but understand that like your place in a band exists as just your place it's not the whole sound and Hmm. it's it's taken me 16 years to figure out what that correct combo is all right so here we are for another episode of call to adventure John Duckworth, Alexopoulos, and that was a little snippet from our conversation to come with the talented Mackenzie Eddy. But uh, Alex, before we move any further, we wanted people to hear her voice. Yeah, you know, to understand a painter, you have to see their their, their visuals. To understand a poet, you got to hear their their verses. And to understand an artist such as Mackenzie Eddy, you, you really got to tune into her music. Yeah. When we listened or asked her for the three songs of her choice, she didn't choose any of her own selections, so we did that for her. Uh, This is off of her Young Platinum album, uh, song Mannequins, part two, featuring Murs. You'll enjoy. Check it out, and then keep tuning in for our conversation with her to follow. See, I blew out the candle keeping me up. And now the darkness is becoming quite comforting You see, this life's so full of sweetness, meanness, mystery I've broken most of the rules the four mothers laid Keep my head above the water and my heart next to the page the past is just an anchor about to pull it out the mud I grew up next to sharks and dolphins, it shouldn't be too tough So shouts to all the southern ladies, yeah you raised me right I can clean a fish, I caught mid-morning, no football I can dance, and Jesse taught me how to fight, yeah I can fight Watch, I'll take an hourglass You need to time down I'll let the time pass You got implants I cut my hair off You wanna borrow some Stick it where your pants off I'm sorry if I'm rude And yeah, smoke weed Modern day role model No pills, no surgery Hop on a tour bus About a month from now 60 days, 50 cities About to rock the fuck out I keep a cool head Lean on my best friend Yeah, she's a steady one Stronger than most men I keep a cool head Lean on my best friend Yeah, she's a Steady one, stronger than most men. I keep a cool head, lean on my best friend. Yeah, she's a steady one, stronger than most men. I keep a cool head, lean on my best friend. Yeah, she's a steady one, stronger than most men. Doctor Who. 
Cornell West Coast. Inhale oxygen, exhale asbestos. Let's toast Welcome to Ohm Radio. Alexopoulos, John Duckworth, here for another edition of Call to Adventure. And while Mackenzie Eddy, our guest today, might appear small in stature, she stands large in her expression. While many might pursue one avenue, she's traversed many. She's an incredibly talented musician, having toured nationally and internationally with many of today's most well-known hip-hop and electronic artists. She's a natural-born leader, having served as president of Damon Dash's Blue Rock Records. She's an entrepreneur as the founder-creator of King Dusko. And she's a voice for change as a civic activist through her role with the Bass League of Charleston. Simply put, no labels apply with our guest this afternoon. Mackenzie, welcome to the show. It's quite an introduction. Thanks. <laughs> it took me a lot of time to put it together. It's you have sweet. A, you have a really... <laughs> hey, just going to bask in it for a moment. Very yeah. nice. <laughs> I mean, it's all true. <laughs> a remarkable young life and uh, so many things to get into, which I'm excited about. And you, you know. grew up in where? Hilton Head? Hilton Head, yeah. yeah. Um, talk about your upbringing. Um, that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a brother who's named Jesse who lives here as well, who actually helped me open Dusko. Um, and he is a great like natural athlete. So we grew up playing basketball together and um, I was a gymnast for a long time. And then he kind of influenced me to really get into basketball. So played a lot of basketball, which kind of integrated me into a lot of the communities in South Carolina because we would travel. And so I got to come here and I got to go to to Jasper County and, you know, Walterboro and... Um, what position did you play? Uh, I switched. I, I was point guard sometimes, but normally yeah. two or three. Okay. You referred to yourself as a tomboy. I have a little girl who I refer to as a tomboy, too. Yeah. It's sort of a badge of honor. Did you feel yeah. it that way? I mean... Oh, yeah. totally. I, I mean, you know, you, when you're not... Um, not that tomboys can't be pretty, but when you're not, when mm. you don't, when you don't grow up like being with your biggest accolade being how how pretty you are, mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing, you know. And when you're an athlete, you get accolades for other reasons. So right. I think that's a for for young women like a really big deal. At what point did you um, you mentioned as far as your first call to adventure, starting a band? Yeah. And you said you were 15. Yeah. And so you had been playing, I imagine, for quite a while. I had. I, My mom, we had a piano in my house growing up, and my mom always tried to get me to take lessons, and I never wanted to, And but I would always love to sing. And started just like sitting down at the piano and playing, and then most of my friends were boys. And so uh, I started a band with like my guy friends. And my nice. one, the my first guitar player, Cooper Bradley, who has gone on to be like a leader in our military, strangely enough, but he... Um, he was incredible, man. He, we were like 15, but he could just shred and he loved classic rock. So it was like a classic rock band I was covering all along the Watchtower and stuff. Nice. When I was like 15. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby McGee, Janis Joplin's Bobby McGee. That was one of our. And you were called Just Pat. Uh, just just Past, past Three. three. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you find We do research around here. You guys are awesome. We've got a whole staff. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Katie came off. That's right. That's um, right. <laughs> Doing research about your life, fear doesn't seem to occupy a lot of your headspace. Um, did you? What's your relationship to that word, and how early did you abandon it? Hmm. Um, man, I honestly like grew up fighting. Yeah, <laughs> I fought a lot. My brother and I fought a lot, like fist fought. And so I think like physical, I had like when I was younger, I had no 
I had no perception of my physical body being anything I should be afraid of, you know, and I was used yeah. to using it. Right. And I th- and then my my parents were just they're just both so awesome. Like they let me be me and didn't ever mm. like really try to stifle me. And um that led to me never really trying to question much about them. Like I was just like, "Oh, okay, cool. You're going to let me do whatever I want." Like I'll be, you know, and I, they taught me to be respectful and they taught me to appreciate what I had, but it wasn't ever like, I felt like I had to rebel. And I think a lot of the times when you, when you're young and you feel like you need to rebel, then that leads to being afraid, Mm. you know, and not that it's bad to be afraid. I think a little bit of, (laughs) a little sense of, of fear is, is what makes us human, (laughs) you know? I don't know. I don't know when I would say that it was, if there was like a moment that I realized that, and I don't know if I would have ever even like said that about myself, <laughs> oh, really? but I don't know. I mean, you know, like we all experienced insecurities and I think insecurity and fear kind of can go hand in mm-hmm. hand sometimes. So, well, it's funny when you talked about, you know, forming your own band at 15 that you thought you might've been too late. Yeah, too I late. did. I did. Well, I, I think that's still about stuff like, Oh, I don't know right? how to speak Spanish. Like uh, I'm just too late. Why don't I how to start learning how to speak Spanish and I was 10 when my brain would have understood it better uh, you know and I remember being 15 like I wish I would have learned how to play the guitar because every band I would want to start you know that would be whoever the guitar player was dictated the sound and I'm like man and you know realizing and looking back now like starting a band at 15 and I'm 31 so it's like okay I've been doing that for 16 years and it's I'm glad that in that moment I did it but well, you did it then yeah yeah but it it like looking back on that and thinking about it it's like I've got a really life can be long and we we were it's never too late you know um, but I do remember that. I, and I think my mom used to always tell me like, you have such a one track mind. Like when you think about something that you want to do, you don't listen to anything anyone else says uh. about like you just, and it's that, that was very true of me when I was younger. I think now I've, I've become a little more open-minded and like receptive to things. But That talent can be really helpful though, when you're trying to get from point A to point B is, is that, you know, singular vision to, yeah. to, to get it done. And I was fortunate, you know, like I was fortunate that I didn't have to worry about anything growing up really. You know, I wasn't rich by any means. Like my mom's a school teacher and my dad sold cars, but I didn't have to worry about eating or, mm. um, you know, how I was going to get to school or whether or not I was going to be able to focus on my schoolwork when I got home. Like, you know, so that was a really big gift, you know, that, that being born into that kind of life, it gives you, you're, you're inherently going to be less afraid, you know? So it's good to be able to recognize that and be thankful for it for sure. Well, and some people look at it the opposite way. I mean, that's a powerful statement to say that because I think some people look at what they've been given and sort of, uh, are afraid to go a different direction for fear of losing that. You know? Yeah. Um, collaboration, when you look at your work and all the collaboration you do with all the uh, musicians and creatively with King Dusko and all the work you've done, going back to the band, that's probably the first real entree into that. What, what did that experience teach you about collaborating? The first band? Yeah. I think uh, that you have to let your own vision be solid and true, but understand that like your place in a band exists as just your place. It's not the whole sound. And Hmm. it's, 
it's taken me 16 years to figure out what that correct combo is. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the hardest relationship that you're ever going to try to be in because you're in it with multiple people. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if one person doesn't have the same vision, that's why bands break up all the time. You know, if one person's like vision is different, then it just, it, the tension, tension can build and, you know, multiple people's emotions and thoughts are very hard to manage when you're trying to collectively express something. And it's all very personal. Oh yeah. It's the most, yeah. it's the most personal. And sometimes it's magic because the work of every individual creates uh, an end result that's just beyond the sum of the parts. And other times it's disastrous. Is it magic or are there things that you look for in your collaborative efforts going forward? I think it's like a a little bit of magic for sure. But I think, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't say that like the people that I've ended up playing music with now were... Um, to, like I, they, they were all strategically placed, you know. Like there's definitely a little bit of like, whew, I don't know how this happened, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but um, I think you get better at recognizing right away over the years. Like intuition, just yeah. Like, it. can I do I really have a connection with this person? Because I'm gonna have to have that to even be able to start thinking about making music with them, and. It, it becomes easier and easier to recognize and easier and easier to either commit to or be like, no, nah, this isn't, mm-hmm. you know? And usually it's right away. Like now at this point, it's right away for me. It is, yeah. It's interesting when you think about that with creative process. Um, it's one of those things that when you're sharing that with another individual, you know, I mean, everybody's coming at it from a different perspective and, and it's, it's important to be able to recognize that and allow that other perspective into the process and then it can change your perspective along the way. And so it can be a real beautiful thing, but right off the bat, you've got to be able to feel like, oh, I've got a connection here. Yeah, like, do I, do I trust this person, really, is yeah. what it is. Like, do I trust that I can be like, because my artistic space is the most vulnerable that I am. You know, I'm, mm. I'm the most open and most... Like it's, it's, it's where I'm vulnerable. So, um, yeah, that's, that's important. And you just, you don't, you don't always know right away, but I think like, I don't know how many hours I've put into it at this point, but I think at some point you hit a, uh, like there's a mile marker where you're like, oh, okay. I actually don't have to really even think about this anymore. I think that was the point of uh, of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Ten Thousand Hours. It, it, exactly. it, it also had to do. Well, he, well, actually, no, the other book he did called Blink. Mm-hmm. which has to do with not second-guessing your intuition, essentially. Like when you have that first moment, aha, of whether this clicks or not, Some, so many people will then go and do hours and hours and hours of research to kind of make sure that that first moment was correct. And his point is, no, nah, just, just take it at face value and it's correct. <laughs> and it is so many times. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I've experienced so many times too in my life where like you feel that moment and then you ignore it. And then uh, later you're like, oh, <laughs> why? <laughs> why did I do that? Why did I do that? I'm getting better and better, but uh, I'm not all the way, you know. So I actually like read lifelong. that <laughs> one of your other bands, Stealing from Bandits. Oh, man. You met the one of the, the, the your bandmates in line at orientation at, at USC? Yeah, he's hilarious, So man. speaking of it clicking, it just clicked? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, we were, I felt like I, he was one of my best friends, like, immediately. I was like, dude, I don't know. He, he's crazy. Huh. But, he's crazy. Good oh, crazy, just, I'm Yeah, hoping. we were in college, you know. <laughs> what were you studying in college? I started doing broadcast journalism. Okay. And then changed to English. And then... 
kind of did like a double major in English and um, public relations. Okay. So, but I was, I was, I, I wish, I don't know if I wish. I, college was awesome. I went to USC. It was great. But I was so ready to leave South Carolina. Okay. And I went, I got to go to Italy. I studied abroad my junior year of college and that was awesome. But I came back and I was like, I got to go to New York. Like I just, I knew, I knew when I knew. What I, was it about New York that was calling you? Did I don't know. Music? I, was it just? It was just that it was the, it was the scariest, maybe it was the uh, scariest thing that I could, that you could imagine? imagine doing. I okay. didn't know really anybody yeah. there and I no thought about it and I was like, okay, I'm not going to move there unless I get a job or have like an internship or something. Okay. And one of my really good friends that I met freshman year of college as well, her sister was working for Damon at the time. We were at a Citizen Cope concert, strangely enough, in Columbia. And when I moved to New York, I got the the job that I got because of Citizen Cope and Alice Smith, which is very strange, but I was yeah. at a Citizen Cope concert in Columbia when I got this call. I was like, do you want to come to New York and interview next week? And I was graduating that week and I was like, sure. So I did. Perfect timing. But uh, back to stealing from bandits. Okay. Um, <laughs> Liam Durlam was, is the, he, he's actually a guy from DC who is a rapper and we had this like weird funk rock band. Um, his friend from growing up, Sean O'Connell, was my guitar player who ended up coming to New York. And we kind of all ended up going to New York. And Sean and I still keep in touch. But okay. we ended up doing a lot of projects together in New York, he and I did. So that band kind of has extended. And that's like something that happens with bands, too, I feel like. You, you might start with four people and realize like, okay, well three of these people like I might not make much more music with but for some reason like this person huh. and I we're gonna still weave through life always kind of working together and somehow the original connection happens in some really random moment where you're standing in line with somebody and that's and then it le leads to like a lifetime connection it's yeah, weird so I mean I, like I didn't know that we were gonna make music together originally you know when yeah, I met okay. him I don't think I've really ever initially met someone with the intention of just making music with mm. them you know normally if you make a connection and then you figure it out and then through you know like more and more now I meet people through music but yeah not, not uh then. no speaking of music you have lots of influences uh 90s R&B hip-hop uh but one of your three songs was from the great Stevie Nicks Fleetwood Mac and Dreams we're gonna go to that but prior to can you share with us sort of why that song's so meaningful to you? Yeah, I just think that sh that for a, I don't know if you could call it a love song, it's more than that, but um, a song that's not maybe necessarily about social justice, right? Because I think those songs are, are uh, on another level important. But um, it's just some of the most eloquently simple lyrics mm -hmm. that I've ever heard. You know, she like she's saying, players like talking about players like like you know the way that we use players mm -hmm. before that was even a thing mm. yeah <laughs> you know she invented the word yeah. <laughs> it's crazy well we're gonna uh tune into a little uh Fleetwood Mac dreams enjoy Free. 
Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac, Dreams, beautiful tune. Uh, John Duckworth, Alexopolis, we're here with Mackenzie Eddy. Born and raised in uh, Hilton Head, goes to school at South Carolina, sort of itching to get away. And you call on an application, I guess, for, to be the assistant of Damon Dash, formerly business partner with Jay-Z and Rockefeller Records. Pretty, you know, big guy hero in in the in the hip hop scene what was that For like sure it was uh it was cool it was i i went in for the interview and he was very um any fe- confident? Go back to that fear. Was there <laughs> yeah. any trepidation? Oh, about- of course. I mean, of course, I was afraid. You know, i i never. I'd been to New York like one other time in my life. Is that right? Yeah, and uh, yeah. I mean, I was terrified, but um, I don't know. I did it, and he talked to me for maybe like ten minutes, and then didn't even. I remember like I had all my, you know, stuff, my papers, like this is what I've done. Like I've, you know, this is the volunteer work I've done. And he didn't even ask to look at it. And he just asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And he's like, what do you really want to do with your life? And at the time he wasn't in the music industry at all. He was like working. He had just, um, Rachel Roy was his wife at the time. And he had just sold half of her company to Jones of New York. So he was like heavily immersed in the fashion industry. And I was like, honestly, I want to be an A&R. That was just 
a word, a job title that I knew from like research. You know, I didn't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing <laughs> out industry was. lingo. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, mean, I thought that's what I wanted to be. And <laughs> I mean, weirdly enough, like as I, he, I left and I got the job and I moved back to New York a week later and I started my job a week after that. And I mean, it was crazy, <laughs> but it was awesome. And um, eventually, over the period of about like a year and a half, two years, I found myself running a record label. Yeah, you go from assistant to the president of Blue Rock Records and an artist of which they're promoting. You know, w- walk through sort of how that happened. Number one, he seems like a guy who trusted his intuition. I mean, in reading about yeah. him. Oh, for sure. He just... Yeah, no, he... I mean, he... Like, he taught me how to build an infrastructure of people who believe that they are all equally contributing to the same goal, no matter what position they're playing. Hmm. So from the beginning, if I would do something good, he would never be like, oh, this is my assistant. She did something good. He would be like, this is Mackenzie. This is what she did, you know? And it was very empowering um, he was just really good at empowering people around him, young people. And at the time, like, you know, was going through some financial setbacks and all of that, which regardless, like, that's never easy to just, you know, look around a room and be like, all right, who are these people in here? And I don't really know them that well. And I'm going to empower them because I'm going to trust that they're going to be able to handle this. Well, and how old are did. you? You're 23? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you mentioned that you're one of your other pivotal calls to adventure was calling on the Black Keys. Yeah, so that's kind of like what started the label. That started the label. Yeah, we. Okay. Um, I had been living in Brooklyn above a bar called the Fourth Avenue Pub. It was like an area of Brooklyn that wasn't... At the t- it was a really cool time to be living there. Um, it, it was Fourth Avenue in, in Bergen, so it was like right where oh, the yeah. new stadium is, but at the time that was not there. Right, okay. And it was just this cool, I lived above this cool bar and I would get home at like three in the morning, like driven in this S class and they dropped me off at my front door because it was so late. I worked from like nine until three all the time because you know, you do all the stuff during the day and then at night work with musicians. And anyway, so we, we we started off in a really nice office building and then he hit a lot of financial problems. We ended up leaving and working out of an apartment and I, I stuck with it because I was like, man, I don't, I don't really care what the perception of this is. I know what this person has done. And so if I can just be around them for a few years and like learn how they did that. And I mean, I learned so much. Um, but he was just mm-hmm. like, we were working with the rapper Jim Jones of the Diplomats. Um, and I was listening to a lot of Black Keys at the time and they weren't super famous yet, but they were, they were famous, (laughs) you know, like I was, I never thought I would have ended up working with them. And I, he was like, this band's awesome. You should call them and see if they'll do a record with Jim. And I was like, I'm just going to call the Black Keys. And he's like, yeah. So I did. I called their manager like two days later, they called me back and they were like, we booked Studio G in New York, like. Just like Get that. Jim Let's there. Yeah. Huh. And I mean, we, you know, their manager and Damon talked for a while. And, and then we ended up going to the studio. We had run into Most Def like a few days before that in New York. And Damon knows everyone, you know, so it's like running to him, end up in some room where we're explaining to him that we're going to be in the studio with the Black Keys the next week. And he was like, well, call me. 
oh, when nice. they're in town. So <laughs> we we get to Studio G the day that we're supposed to make the record. Jim Jones is in Greece, stuck on a plane. And we're sitting there in the studio with the black keys with no Jim Jones. And I'm like, damn, let's call Mose. And so that's what we did. And so that's how that project started, because he answered and came, did a record. And then it was like, why don't we call all of the rappers we know? And, and he knew everyone. Yeah. So we called Raekwon and we called the RZA and we called Faramanch. Faramanch was my call. I was like, nice. we got to get Faramanch on this. But, um, and yeah, suddenly I you mean, find yourself president of a record label that wasn't really in existence no. very long before that. No, it was crazy. That is crazy. And you said... Uh, you were 99% sure you were not going to speak to somebody at Black Keys Management. No. <laughs> John Peets um, yeah. was their manager. I, I'm sure he still is. And he he was just one of the most brilliant guys. And I think he knew. They had people around them that told them, like, Jim Jones is, you need to, you know. This is good. Yeah. 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 And because he had just had that song, Ballin'. Uh, okay. <laughs> so he had crossed over, but when he was with the diplomats, uh, he was very underground. Um, Jim Jones was. Yeah. Yeah. Before that song. So that had happened. And so he still, he had a lot of street cred, but had, had just had kind of a big hit. Um, How do you maintain yourself um, in a world which is pretty male dominated hip hop culture? Uh, you're young. Are you unsure of yourself? Or are you just in and you, in you, you're not no. questioning. I mean, what is that like? I mean, I I grew up around hip hop, so I grew on people. Grew up around people who liked hip hop. Mm -hmm. I was never so never felt like an in, outsider in in that world. Not really. I think it's part of what Damon recognized when he met me, and then I think like just I even growing up like in high school, I never really like fit in with a clique. Like I never. Hmm. I was never really had a clique. Like I just no kinda, labels. Yeah, and so. It was like a natural progression to and find myself in a room full of rappers and like not really ever feel like it was weird because I liked the music and I liked the industry and I mean in 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 this circumstance by the time that record came out because we set it up really nicely and did a lot of smart things with it I had enough credibility where I didn't need to really worry about being like a woman in the hip hop industry mm -hmm. and that being weird um and you know, like I think b back to like my childhood, like my brother really, <laughs> he really taught me how to be um, not like aggressive, but so I shouldn't get mad at my son like this morning when he's beating up on his little sister. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not gonna. Yeah. Right. Max, <laughs> he's instilling confidence. That's right, it's a confidence builder. You go, Max, go ahead, lay a couple more on her. I'll remember that. <laughs> w when did you feel like? I, I can. I'm a performer. I, I'm not only am I can I run this label. I I should be collaborating with these individuals. I mean, that kind of happened um, naturally, I guess. Like I was just spending so much time, and uh, early on, somebody had told Damon that I was a singer. And I, when I was in living in Brooklyn, I had determined like I'm not gonna use him. I'm not gonna let my affiliation with this be the way that I musical greatness you know like I wanted to keep it separate and so I went to the bitter end which is like a singer songwriter club in New York mm -hmm. and they let you if you bring 
20 people. If you bring less than 20 people, you have to pay for everybody under 20 people that you bring. <laughs> but if you bring 20 people, then they'll let you play there and you can make money off of like after that, you know, everybody has to pay like some ridiculous door charge. But I ended up playing that show and everybody from my office came. So they found out I could sing then. And then I was kind of running parallel tracks. And after the Black Keys record happened, um, and we moved into our office building that was ridiculous, <laughs> which actually we ended up getting through kind of a deal that we cut with the landlord, not because we had a ton of money, which that was definitely something New York taught me too. It was like, you don't have to have money. You can do whatever you want. You just got to have ideas, you know, and then be creative with them and never stop pursuing whatever it is that you want. So um, after we had moved back into that office and started like working with more and more rappers who were kind of like coming up in the game at the time, I had my band going with Sean and Liam, like not really talking about it. And I would have these shows and everybody would be like, wait, what, you have a show? And then they'd come. And so I just, I became friends with these people. And then, like I said, mm -hmm. like naturally started to collaborate. It's a great way to do it. It's a it's a casual entry, you know. You're not you're not you're not tooting your horn on the way well, in. Well, part of it was that I never thought that like they would want me to collaborate oh. with them. You know, like I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's that beautiful balance that you have of of real confidence, lack of fear, and a real sense of humility. And and mm -hmm. um, I think Damon Dash has spoken about that, um, but it, it's quite evident. You know, in the work and how you, you go, how you approach it. You know, so often uh, hip hop has a, a social commentary. You know, it tends to get political often, and and not all of it, but the, there's definitely some social commentary going on often. Was that something that led you, that attracted you to it, or was it just the music initially? I mean, like going back to your days in Hilton Head, where you were talking about listening to to hip-hop back then. I'll be honest, my first hip-hop record I bought was Chronic 2001, so... Okay, oh, nice. That's but a good first. <laughs> Very not the Chronic, but Chronic 2001, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> and But even within there, even though there's a lot that, you know, a lot of people would listen to and be like, oh, oh that's really vulgar. I I understood it somehow. I don't know uh -huh. how, but I it, it definitely appealed to me. And I think just the the pure rhythmic artistry of really talented hip hop artists has always appealed to me. Um, I started talking at a really early age, like kind of freakish, like eight months or something weird. Oh, like wow. That. And so I think people that are able to phrase things in the way that hip hop artists do really, really great ones, it just blows my mind. Really clicks for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause it's so fascinating to think that, you know, here you are from Hilton Head Island and here's Damon Dash from Harlem. I know. And suddenly you guys are working together and good friends and collaborating on projects. And, and it's, it's, it's so interesting and curious the way the world turns. <laughs> Basketball really helped with that too. Oh, nice. Um, you know, I, when I first moved there, I played a lot. You did? Still. And I remember he took me up to Spanish Harlem and everybody was playing basketball. And I was like, I'll play. And then everybody's like, you can play ball? And I mean, that's a unifier. <laughs> you when play ball? You sing? Like, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? So, you know, when you're, you know, even if you're in an environment where, you know, obviously my life has been very different from anybody that's, anybody's that's grown up in Spanish Harlem. But when you can connect with someone, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Absolutely. You know? Well, I can't wait to have you out to the, my place on John's Island. I've got a half court. Oh, dude. So. <laughs> nice. yeah, so I don't play as much as I'd like to these days. <laughs> it's all right. 
<laughs> you know, just going back to John, your comments about social commentary and hip hop and, and the poetry, um, interested in one of your favorite quotes was Martin Luther King, uh, in his letter from Birmingham jail, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. And you went on to say that that letter was one of the most meaningful pieces of literature you've read uh, recently. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, with the I Have a Dream speech. I think a lot of us did hearing it. And just, I mean, that was obviously just one of the greatest speeches that's ever been written. But um, when I read this, I was like, oh my God, this is like a totally different thing. And I can't believe that I, I didn't read it until recently uh, somehow. And um, I mean, that quote in particular to me resonates because it's it's so universal, right? Like that's like, it's, it's drawing from like universal religious principles around the world. Um, but he's he was just so able to... Um, in that quote, and then with the message behind his letter, um, articulate in a way that was emotional, but logical, mm. the reasons that, you know, in, in this case, segregation needed to be, even though it was a lot, it was unjust and it needed to be changed. Um, and I, I just, I think that's really important, like to be able to write something that in persuasive writing that is not only emotional and not only logical Both. but somehow like smashed into one like that's like the most powerful place you can operate from does that influence how you go about your writing um sometimes with with lyrical writing sometimes i don't know where it comes from um i think when i write about things that I think, yes, um, I try. <laughs> I mean, that's a tough standard to live up to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he—it's one of the more beautifully articulated arguments I've ever read in my life. I, I, it's the most. I've read it a few times now, and just every time, like when I'm reading it, it like makes me cry at some points. So I'm like, God, like he's yeah. just like, ha, like oh. he 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 explains emotionally what it would feel like to be in the position of someone living in Birmingham during the 50s and 60s and explains in detail, like, if this were you, this is exactly what would happen. But then he uses, like, logic and the law to mm -hmm. explain why, at the same time, it's still wrong. Like, here's all this emotion for you. I'm going to say it in a poetic and beautiful, crazy, painful way. And then I'm going to back it all up with, like, factual reasoning. That's interesting because you said about one of your refusals was the refusal to go to law school, I think, <laughs> right? Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. So th there's that balance of your emotional musical and talk to us about that decision and I wouldn't put law school. No, I know. It's funny. I, um, I was going to go to law school before I moved to New York. So that was kind of the choice. Like, do you go take this job where you have no idea what type of future you're going to have and there's no solid, though granted now, even if you go to law school, there's no solid anything anyway, which I learned, which I have learned, but, um, 
you know, it, it seemed like a choice. Like, do I take like this road where I'm going to have a, a doctorate or do I take this road where I'm not and I'm going to get work with this? Like, I'd read all kinds of crazy stuff about Damon, you know, like this crazy hip hop mogul. And I don't know, it just, it, it didn't feel right to not take a bigger risk. And I was always like, I can always go to law school, you know? This moment's now. This is yeah. this this is happening. Yeah, I'm going going to New York. Yeah, and, and, and you were there for six years. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when we, um, well, at some point when we come back from our next break here, we're going to talk a little bit about you leaving New York, and maybe some of the reasons behind there. Um, but uh, but before before we do, we're going to lead out with another song by Benjamin Starr, who is his song's called Allah. And tell me about, tell us a little bit about Benjamin Starr before we go to break. Benjamin Starr. Real name, Fitzgerald Wiggins. Is that right? Yeah. Great, dude. Um, Sorry, Fitz. Don't get mad at me for telling him your real name if you're listening. Um, I mean, he, I I met him through a friend of mine, uh, another hip hop artist, Matt Monday, who's local here in Charleston. Um, And we met. Uh, in the wake of the Mother Emanuel shootings. And we kind of all naturally just came together and collaborated on a performance. And um, it was like a 10-piece band of a mix of a lot of different people. But um, he is one of the most exceptional hip-hop artists I've ever heard. And he's local, and it's it's really cool. And he and I are starting to collaborate together. Um, the song is called Allah. And... Uh, to me, I've never asked him, but to me, I think that he's speaking from a place in his mind where he wants us as well, just like Martin Luther King did, to realize that like we're all we're all we're all living on the same earth, man. You know? Like yeah. we're all we are all sharing this space and and no matter what, if we hurt each other, no matter what religion we are, it's going to affect us. And so, um, I think, I think, yeah, uh, yeah, he's great, man. (laughs) Well, it's an incredible album and I agree, you know, it's, it's, it's raw, it's strong, it's powerful and it's, and it's beautiful at the same time. Well, let's, let's hear Allah by Benjamin Starr. Here we go. The same God that he says, uh, that he expresses the existence of is the God that the Christians profess to believe in themselves and the God that the Jews believe in. One God, the creator of the universe. Uh, Salah. Uh, it's Allah It's Allah Arm, leg, leg, my arm, head, that's Islam Arm, leg, leg, my arm, head, that's wisdom My neck, wrist, riddled with ice, these lights hit on Half-wise man and highs man, stiff arm Blue-collar MC, white-collar capable The prodigy, the pocket me, quality rap ratio Amused but confused, where to put y'all Something like the cat meeting three stacks in the black Johnny football I learned from it, you're sipping Schlitz malt liquor Eating rice and cube steaks, banging ice cube tapes My cards are face value, stack decks like Aztecs I could rap 2012s if I have to, I'm Proof, 
facing me. Master level masonry. 33 degrees in the breeze. No sleeves. I flame Jamaican. Please pray for me. New God flow. Bring the shady uh. atheist to the paper. Put your pride on sunset. You guessed it. Show so dope. Your nose tingle. Red suit single breasted. I could rock Barclays and Penny Hardaways with the backdrop of a minister Malcolm X message. This is real rap and I'm inclined to spit. Black scientific. Every lyric read vivid like the hieroglyphs. There's truth in my literature. I got a flair for it. You sharpshoot in the booth. My flow is like the figure four. This rap on tap is no basic brew. Sobering, no contact. I got LASIK view. Fort Knox, gold grill. This face is blue. On your block, I'm like Spock in that spaceship coupe. Futuristic, I spewed it and view shifted. Truth is, I stand accused. I tutored the youth different. The black bar fish, I check chest so often. At best, I get Shakespeare-esque when it's talking. Tell me why I need a Basquiat when every bar drop is art. All my abstract strokes for black folks. Steady hands, pink revivals. I ain't colorblind, so I color mine with Scott Heron. Bobby Bland vinyls. I don't own a Rembrandt or Warhol. Just Romare beard and those collages on the walls of my conscience. I am never rattled. I would stand shots. Child to survival. I was stoked to call Michael in the sandbox. I unsheathed for death streets. The second I bless beats is just a bit fresher than chef's quiche. Undefeated blending the blues with a lit fuse. Please excuse the Don Shula in my maneuvering. All my issue classic. I put the cack in the casket. I agitated the flames and I resurrected the ashes. This is God work through a sinner. Every line, every rhyme. No, I signed by the seal and deliver. Arm, leg, leg, my arm, head, that's Islam Arm, leg, leg, my arm, head, that's wisdom My neck, wrist, riddle with ice, these lights hit on Half-wise man and high's man, stiff arm Never need a control verse for this shit I control first I give truth to dianeers, salute the pioneers Relaxed in the plush leather with the lights down Mr. Taylor playing shoot the right now All right, Benjamin Starr with Allah. What a great, powerful song. We're back in the studios. John Duckworth, Alexopoulos, Mackenzie Eddy. And so you're in New York, and at some point you say it's ready to leave. And, and when you were talking to Alex and I beforehand, you said that it, uh, choosing to go to New York was definitely a call to adventure, but choosing to leave was a pretty scary leap of faith. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, it was scary because I've, you know, there's, when you leave South Carolina and you go to New York City and you end up, and you're me, and you end up working for a, a hip hop label and there's all this press around it and you don't talk to your friends or your family for a long time, which is what ends up happening when you get swept into that world. There's a perception, you know, of like, oh, you've, you're this person now and so it's scary to know that you're still the same person or feel like I haven't really I don't know I haven't done that much and well just to interrupt real quick because <laughs> L Magazine I was reading a, an article referred to you I think at 25 years old is a Clive Davis in the making so you were doing a lot in New York I was but I think I don't know like everybody has their own insecurities and your own perspective when you're in it and you're just working really hard it's hard to even and this is a part of the reason why I left there it's hard to even appreciate where you are mm. you know you're you're on this track where you're just like nothing is enough in that city nothing's enough it's never you're never gonna everybody around you is hustling to get the same things that you're trying to get and everybody is willing to work hard uh, you have to if you want to be able to eat there. <laughs> and know? everything's about the next thing, so there's no pause to reflect. No, and or you're and savor. you're and you're expected to be the cultural hub, basically, of the world. And so 
you're thinking like, oh Big. my God, like it's a, it's a, it's heavy, it's heavy weight. And when you're not able to even enjoy the fruits of your labor, then, you know, by, by even like having time to like meditate on what it is that you've done, um, it can become really stifling. And so like, I knew that that was all going on, but then there was like this whole side of me, like I think the side that beat my brother up when I was a kid <laughs> that was like, you can't leave this. So you're, you're giving up, you know? And, and it took me a year probably from like the time where I really started feeling like I'd had enough there. Um, and realizing that, you know, like I was saying to y'all before, Damon was awesome, but that I was ready for my own, I was ready to do my own thing. And it took me about a year to really fully commit to, and honestly admit to myself, like, that, like, none of what I had done, you know, because I had built through my whole 20s, that was my home, you know? So to come, to leave there was scary too. So it's weird to, like, yeah. think about that. Like, I was comfortable in New York, you know, it was my life. And so to, to totally leave it was, was scary. Um, and to admit, like, well, I don't really know what's going to happen. And I'm not walking back into a job and I'm not walking back into some like esteemed mm. position. Like I'm leaving this thing that like everybody else is telling me it's an esteemed position, but I don't really feel awesome about my life. And I'm going to go to Charleston. So the gut feeling tells you get out of town, but it takes a little while to actually follow through on that. Yeah. And, 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 at, and at the same time, you, you have some connection in Charleston. You didn't grow up in Charleston. So what was your connection here? My brother lives here and has lived here for 15 years. But, okay. um, but Ioka Lucas, that started Charleston Fashion Week, called me to get me to perform um, with her. Or on, not with her, um, but to open their, their first night there. And when I came down, um, Jamie Lynn Snyder, who was my next door neighbor at Dusko, had a party and uh, asked me to play. I had a friend with me named Kat CHR, the Jamaican singer-songwriter who I've done a lot of work with. Um, she was with me and we went into Jalen Snyder and did a little acoustic show. And then I was like, oh my God, who are these people? Just like this, you know, when I moved from Hilton Head and went, decided to go to school at USC. I visited Charleston too. And I just honestly didn't feel like it was diverse enough. I was just like, mm. I don't, eh. and when I came back, I could tell that there was a change happening. I could tell that there was this like current of forward thinking, like people. And it made me feel really good. And, um, you know, we, the, the space that was turned into dusk, it was right next door to Jamie Lynn's. And so I saw it empty then and went back to New York. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> so that was a thought right away. You know, I, I want to open a space. And, well, and at the same time, of course, you, when you're working for Damon Dash, he's opened up this space. What is it? DD172? Well, well, he, so DD172 was in Tribeca in New York. Tribeca, yeah. And we actually were planning on like doing a little division down here. Okay. And so that was why we had originally started looking. Oh, okay. And I was like, what was, what was DD172? It was like a creative hub. We had an art gallery. It was like 10,000 square feet. So we had an art gallery on one floor. The next floor was like um, just videographers and uh, there was like a little studio in the corner. So like we made music there. We could shoot videos there. We could, there was, we did an, had an underground music venue where we only let a hundred people in and like Erica Badu played down there and nice all kinds of people. But it was like a very creative, cool environment where we produced all of the stuff that 
it was that we were doing. And so when we were going to start it down here, it was going to kind of be the same thing. But when I, I was like, I want to, I want to go, I'm going to do it. And I got down here and about a month later, stuff had changed in New York and everybody was like, oh, we don't really want to fund it anymore. Come back. And I was like, no. Uh, I'm off. This is my thing now. I was like, I'm not, I'm going to figure this out. And so I didn't have a lot of money. Like I put everything I had into the space, but it was great, (laughs) you know? And it was Uh, a perfect way for you to gain entry into Charleston and and make connections and meet people. The kind of people who you saw when you first got here and thought something's happening in this town. And suddenly you're owning a space on King Street that's bringing those people to you on a regular basis, right? It was cool. And my brother um, had a lot to do with it. A lot of people don't know this, but Uh um, my brother was integral. Um, He knew everyone. He Mm. rode rickshaw for like seven years. Ah, okay. And so he had some cash too. And it was actually, he and I did it together. Nice. And um, yeah, I mean, he knew, he, the day we opened, we were packed, I think a lot due to obviously like my reputation, but then a lot due to the fact that like these were all of his friends. And... So we didn't know what we were doing, you know, I was just like, let's just have a space where everyone can, because I remember thinking there was never a plan for beer and wine, but. Right. Because I love how you call this. It's it's the space. Yeah. It's a very nebulous title. I know. (laughs) But, uh. (laughs) Yeah, we we didn't have we didn't have. I was just like, we got to figure out a way to make money. I don't know how we're gonna do this. And so it was kind of gallery, <laughs> a place for people to play music, and then yeah. there was coffee, and then there was beer, yeah. and there was kegs, and then there were clothing, and a little bit of everything, all right? Kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> what, what's um, the the uh, the lyric from? I think it's uh, retrograde. Uh, your song where it's close your eyes free your mind what, what, what's the lyric yeah man I haven't even thought you know, about it's that funny song you say that. I wrote that down I wrote down you say in that song I want to cut my ties and close my eyes yeah. and just be free yeah. yeah that's the lyric and so I'm thinking like how did it feel like to move out of the pressure and the weight of New York and, and be free doing what you're doing in- incredible yeah. incredible hmm. it was uh, I mean, the best choice I've ever made for sure. Um, like I just, the level of like health that I have going on now is just so much better. But, um, that song I actually wrote with Mark Brownstein of the Disco Biscuits and he lived in Philly and they all live in Philly and we randomly became really good friends and that's a long story, but we decided to make a record together that we actually never put out. Um, but Retrograde was one of the songs off of it. So Love we put out too. some okay. like individual tracks, but we never like life happened and we never ended up putting it out. But I used to take the train from New York to Philly and that was like my escape. And I'd be like, I'm in Philly. Oh, <laughs> and that's so funny to people. They're right. Like, what? And I'm like, dude, I love Philly. Philly was chill. Philly's so great. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just go to his studio and write. And I mean, that was obviously like pretty, uh, you know, and it was crazy. The people around me, I'd get back and play these tracks and be like, hope they're not listening to the lyrics, but uh, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but this is where you were. Yeah. 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 And you were, of course, you're doing this in the midst of knowing that you're already gone, but it took you a while to actually be gone. I don't know. I don't yeah. know if I ever really knew for you sure that for I would sure. be gone, yeah. you know, like I, I moved probably before I was fully actually gone from yeah. there. It took me a while, you know. But so how how long was uh, uh, was Dusko King Dusko open? Uh, almost three years. Three years. Yeah, I had I only signed a three year lease. Okay. okay. Yeah. 
And then King Street exploded. And King Street exploded. Yeah. My landlords, I don't know what they're doing. They're doing something. Huh. It, it, so it ended just because it ended. It wasn't. Yeah. A, a, how did that feel? Good. Yeah. 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 It felt good. It. I mean, I had kind of a crazy summer uh, leading up to its ending. My mom's aorta dissected in two places in Chicago. And so I ended up having to go to Chicago. She lived through it, which is crazy, apparently crazy. Um, she's great now. But uh, I spent like a month in in Chicago. And so I don't know if it made it easier for me to not worry about the closing of Dusko, but yeah, it right. definitely was in perspective, not a big deal at the time. Yeah. And um, I was ready to, you know, like I said, I didn't have like a backer for that space. I didn't have anybody really. And so, I mean, my family, but, you know, I didn't have like some big money behind me to like lean on and I didn't know what I was doing. And so though it was an amazing space, I think I probably could have only handled about three years of it. Had, it. It had run its course. Yeah. You were ready to yeah. move on. And and at the same time, of course, it provided you access to a to whole world of people here that, that, oh, that you've since collaborated with and worked on other projects. And, and from what I understand, the origin of Base League in Charleston started through King, King Dusko, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, we, James Gretzinger, who I grew up with, who owns the warehouse actually on uh-huh. downtown, um, he called a meeting, but Elliot and I actually met at Dusko via some late night ordinance stuff that right. he, we, Joel Hamilton was actually playing out back and it was too loud. I mean, I'm doing air quotes. It was too loud. <laughs> and, uh, and the police came at like nine o'clock at night and gave me a ticket for a thousand bucks for loud noise. And Elliot was sitting at the bar and that's how we met. He was Is like, right? I can help you with that. Yeah. And so we were friends for a long time and we, um, huh. uh, the James had called this meeting because of the late night bar moratorium that was being put into place. And Elliot came to the meeting and it was like a whole bunch of us. It was like Mike Quinn was there. It was like a bunch of musicians, but then it was like bar owners, like Richard Bloom from Rarebit and James Walsh that owns Prohibition and James Gretzinger that owns in Boston that owns Rec Room. And everybody was like, how is this happening? Like, how did this happen? And Elliot was like, guys, you're not, you guys got to get organized, like Mm. get organized. And, and he, it was much bigger than just the bar moratorium that, you know, the, at the root of it, just this realizing, I think that like, man, there's this huge demographic of people, business owners and, and artists that need to come together and learn how to interface with the city in a way that's going to make it harmonious because there's a, there's a culture shift happening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was looking up the, um, the mission statement for base league talks about to promote process, inclusiveness, and transparency in municipal government with a focus on finding inventive ways to encourage the local, millennial, creative, and F&B communities to become more civically engaged and informed. Pretty cool. And BASE yeah. stands for Biz, Art, Culture, Entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's a wide swath. But of, of people who, who maybe might not be very organized naturally right. in order to get things done. But it's interesting that it starts with a $1,000 ticket for loud noise <laughs> at 9 o'clock. Yeah, I mean, the, the ticket is evident of a cultural shift, you know. We, a disconnect. We, yeah, we talk about quality of life all the time here. That was what Mayor Tecklenburg, that was his that was his slogan he ran on, right? Like, a better quality of life. It's like, okay, let, that's cool, but let's like actually get a little deeper whose quality of life who like 
define it. Yeah. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, does it just mean somebody that lives in a big house south of Broad being able to have quiet streets? You know, does it mean uh, if I'm making my living as a bartender, but I'm also a musician, that I shouldn't be able to go play in a band at midnight because that same person doesn't want me to be? Right. You know, how do you, h- how do we all coexist? How do we deal with the fact that there are young people, and not just young people, but people that are living here that want to be able to provide for their families here that aren't either just in college or super rich? Mm-hmm. That there's this like, this new, um, there's a there's a movement happening, you know. There's- there is, and it's interesting because I find that that you know Charleston, and um, maybe this is you know one of the big differences between Charleston and New York as well is is here you really feel like I feel like if you want to get involved, you can get involved and actually make a difference. You can get involved and be talking to the people that matter with one step away, one phone call away, and one person you know. You actually can do that. So when you talk about a younger generation moving here and getting excited about Charleston and then wanting to make some change, uh, that's generally the demographic that gets apathetic about that because they'll say, oh, well, you know, I, change would be good, but nothing's going to happen. But here I really feel like, you know, you can actually get involved and see results. Go, wow, that just yeah. happened. Totally. You really can. And it's, I mean, I think even for me been pretty amazing hmm. like realizing how how much you can actually get done if you get organized um i mean there's still whew, there's a lot of work to do here man certainly did you <laughs> obviously you didn't see that one coming that was a random ticket no. yeah <laughs> sent you down a different path have you been energized by the role of being an activist? Very much so. I don't. I don't know if I would have ever, in my wildest dreams, thought that that would be a title that my name would be associated with. You know, I. Um, I. It's been. It's been really cool. It's. It's been really cool to use the fact that I know a lot of musicians here, and that Dusko was kind of a step toward me getting to know not only just musicians but kind of everybody that at least had an open mind because to walk in the doors there, you kind of have to or had to. And uh, I'm like, what is this place? (laughs) Um, But I think like being able to use those relationships and then know that, wait a minute, Brave Baby, the band, like, and Susto, they're not just like musicians that want to play music. They care about their community and Mm. they're gonna be willing to talk about it. And I knew that because I had talked to them about it. And so when it, when we got down to the like okay we need what we really need to do how at the, at its at its core like in Charleston like we need to get as many like-minded people to vote or to register to vote and it doesn't matter who they vote for they just need to vote because that's the only way that the people that are governing this city are going to listen to them and to be able to talk to those bands and get them to say like sure brave baby was like sure I'll, we'll let our album release also be a voter registration drive it was a huge deal you know, yeah, and great. yeah, and so that's reflective of it's not just me. You know, like this, Elliot and I are great persuasive people, but this wouldn't have been able to happen if the people that are currently living here weren't open-minded and weren't like, yeah, we do need to make a change. Well, you know? and I think that's something that we talk about a lot on the show. That's, that's sort of a, a current that's been bubbling up here for a while now. And, you know, timing's everything. You came at a good time for certain. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking back as we talk about this. um, I'm looking at a note I made when I was reading through 
letter from a Birmingham jail. And, you know, of course, he's talking about uh, nonviolent direct action in particular, but he also um, is talking about being an extremist. Mm -hmm. And we talk about being a radical on the show, and sometimes that shows up in forms that you might not expect it to show up in. And one of the quotes he says is, perhaps the South is in dire need of more creative extremists. Mm. And as you were just talking about that, it really made me think about, yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's, that's really the role How? that you end up unwittingly falling into is, the, is one of a you know, creative extremist or, or just, and all that means is, and he puts it, he goes on to describe what that means. It's just sort of being willing to think outside of the box a little bit and, right. and really look at the situation from a broader perspective and offer up a different view. Civic artist. Yeah, Kate, yeah, beautiful description. Kate Nevin, who was yeah. a guest on our show, described it that way. She's great. She is wonderful. Tell us a little bit about your current creative project, uh, the, the very, very hypnotic, hypnotic soul band. Yeah. I love the yeah. title. Oh, it's great, man. Um, I'm ready to hear it. <laughs> so am I. Um, no, it's uh, it's been really cool. Um, like I said earlier, it started um, in the wake of the Mother Emanuel shootings, and um, Elliot really helped pull the whole band together because two days after the Mother of Manual shootings was my mom's aorta dissected, so I left. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, worked kind of on the phone with him, but put together this group of just, honestly, just like freaking like amazing talent. <laughs> just You're pretty pumped up of, about this group. Oh, it's so cool. I, it's one of the coolest things I've ever, it's the coolest thing I've ever done. Like it was nice. it, being on stage and granted that concert had its own reasons for like when you're on that stage just to feel it, it was powerful the energy in the yeah, room sure. was powerful it was a free concert and um and it was awesome and but i was looking around the stage like everybody on the stage is smiling like mm. it, we just all could feel this energy and um when bernie sanders was in town charles carmody who runs the music hall called me and said hey can you <laughs> can you get that group together again cuz that was crazy and i think it'd work really well and i knew ben Ben Starr was actually like a really big, he was just very vocal about his support for Bernie Sanders. And so I was like, man, Ben would love this. So got in touch with them and I'm like, let's get the band back together. So we did kind of a smaller version of that band and then it was the same feeling. Huh. And, um, and all of us were just like, we can't, we got to, we got to, we got to do it. this. We got to yeah. keep yeah. going. Yeah. And very so. Very cool. Yeah, it's Very exciting. Cool. So you guys are playing what April twenty first? Yeah, at Royal the Royal Mar at the Royal American, which actually was my one of the first venues I've ever played here. I met I met John Kenny, that's the owner there, um, right after they opened, and came down from New York actually and played a show. And oh wow, super cool. But it's cool to to have this band play there, and and it's a big deal because hip hop doesn't you know they, they don't get a lot of hip hop artists don't get a lot of FaceTime at venues in Charleston right now. No, no. Um, and to add the live band element into it. And then we've got a lot of really cool special guests. Uh, Jordan Igo, who's amazing. You guys, I'm sure everybody knows who she is. Um, Zandrina Dunnings, awesome soul singer. Um, Alicia Medore, who actually worked at Dusko forever and is one of my very, very dear friends and is an amazing singer-songwriter, is going to join us too. And Kari Lucas, who's a young, young hip-hop artist, is going to join us. So it'll be a cool night. And then some of the original... You know, members that were part of that ten piece. I'm sure if Charlton's not busy, he'll come play a little trumpet. But we'll yeah, see. Yeah, nice, nice. <laughs> well, reserve great. me a spot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Got you. Well, we are thankful that you've been able to find a home 
here in Charleston. Me too. And and very thankful that you came on to to talk to us today on Ohm Radio for our show. So thank you guys Great. so much for having me. Well, in a in a uh, illustration of how diverse your musical interests are, we started with Fleetwood Mac. We went to Ben Starr, and we're going to end with Emily King and her beautiful tune, Distance. Enjoy. Welcome back. That was 
Distance by Emily King, uh, as chosen by our guest Mackenzie Eddy. This is John Duckworth, Alexopoulos. Al, what do you think? What an incredible young woman. I mean, uh, gift to have her in Charleston. I mean, obviously, musically, incredibly talented, incredibly humble. Um, I'm just fascinated by her adventure in New York. I mean, right. you know, working with Damon Dash, I, you know, for those who don't maybe know Damon Dash, I mean, he's, as you said, he's like on the Mount Rushmore of hip hop. Yeah, I read a quote earlier that you thought might be, might, might help people who don't know who this guy is, but it, it, it starts off by saying, Damon Dash, or sometimes called Dame Dash, is an MFing legend. His early Rockefeller Records moves alone place him somewhere next to Diddy, Russell Simmons, and Brian Birdman Williams on hip-hop executive Mount Rushmore. He introduced the world to Jay-Z. He built a label that included people like Beanie Siegel, Cameron, and Kanye West on its roster. For that, he will always be a giant and always be revered. I, and so I think what's fascinating is, is she was right there. She was running his record. But as she describes it, I mean, she was she was on a tour with Murs from the West Coast rapper. I think she said what sixty cities in, in 80, eighty days. days. Yeah, it's uh, a lot. Life was just going too fast. Yeah, C- couldn't process it all. Couldn't enjoy it. And she just made the cr- very courageous decision. And what to, feels like the correct decision. She looks yeah. really happy. Yeah, she does. And, and very uh, uh, at ease and at peace with her life here in Charleston. Although she did say it was a, it, it was a maybe a little tough transition. From New York to Charleston. Well, it has to be. I mean, not just physically from yeah. New York to Charleston, but just given w- her workspace there and, and coming here. You know, I mean, you think about hip hop in Charleston. It's, I mean, it yeah. doesn't have a yeah. voice yet, and and you know that's one of the beautiful things. I mean, you listen to somebody like Ben Starr, incredible, incredible, right? I mean, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I'm really excited to see that band. Yeah, the very hypnotic soul band. Yeah. It's happening. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when I think about, you know, what's something that Tim Hussey said last week where he was talking about people who really inspire him are those who have this amazing uh, talent and yet they don't talk about it. You mm-hmm. have to be press them to, to get them to really reveal this sort of thing that they have. And, and Mackenzie's one of those people who is incredibly humble and really just wants to get to know you, and, 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 and she's not one to come out and, and list her resume for you. Yeah, we, and that seems to be a common thread of a lot of our guests, which mm-hmm. is really nice, because it, it is a really uh, beautiful trait. I yeah. certainly admire it. Um, but take a look at just McKinsey Eddy online, Google search, you know, videos, music, uh, her plat, was it platinum? Um, the album that young platinum, young platinum, young platinum. And you can find that on, on Bandcamp. just search McKenzie Eddy yeah. and really great, you know, great collaborations with all kinds of hip hop artists. Well, as we were talking about, there's something about like hip hop beats with a male rap and, and then her voice, on top of it, yeah. which is part rap, part melodic. I mean, it's it's angelic, and then rap. I mean, it's just it's a great I combination. Love the combination of yeah. all of it. Really. Well, one of the things that she mentioned when we were talking about uh, um, favorite books, she talked about the Bhagavad Gita, and it's interesting because the if you go to her Instagram account, um, one of the, her quote there is, "Your work is to discover your work, and then with all your heart, give yourself to it." And in my understanding of the Bhagavad Gita, that's really the first word in the Bhagavad Gita is Dharma. And Dharma relates to essentially 
um, your purpose or your mission as an individual in life. And and she mentions that she still doesn't quite understand the Bhagavad Gita, but in my opinion, I think Ten she's got times, it. Right? She's got it pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was she was wonderful to have on the show. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for spending another hour of your time with us, Corbin. Thanks for making it all happen, Katie. Thanks for uh, making uh, putting everything together, making it flow. Um, will uh, anything to conclude with, John? Well, if, you, uh, if you're if you listening to us on the radio and uh, you want to hear more, you can always, uh, uh, it's streaming on OM, what's the website, Corbin? OMRadio96.3.org. Radio 96.3.org. Radio and uh, the radio streaming 24-7. And our show also can be found on SoundCloud or iTunes. Yeah, and it's uh, locally supported, you know, commercial free radio. So uh, if you like what you're hearing, uh, you know, please uh, go online and, and find a way to contribute whatever you're able. Um, we need it and, uh, and appreciate the support. It's one of the great, beautiful things that's happening in Charleston right now. Cheers. Cheers. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.